Well, Cityview family, Merry Christmas Eve to you. I hope you're doing well wherever you are, whenever you are. I hope the joy of the Lord is present with you. And if not, that for the remainder of our time together, his presence and the joy of his presence will become very real to you. Uh, With that said, we are coming to the conclusion of Advent season 2020, but we do have a few more moments together in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Um, And we won't spend much time there, but I do want to thank Noah for reading the passage for me, most of what I'll be dealing with this evening. But I do want to reemphasize specifically one verse, and that's verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Glory. We have seen His glory. What do you think of when you think of glory? Well, tonight, much like what we've done in the past, we're going to be answering three basic questions in regards to the subject of glory. First, what does John mean when he refers to glory or God's glory? Secondly, in what ways does Jesus embody glory as John describes it? And finally, in what way or ways is Jesus as the embodiment of God's glory a light for us as we celebrate Advent? So that first question, what does John mean when he refers to glory? Well, first of all, almost immediately we know he's referring to God's presence experienced. God's presence experienced. When it says The word became flesh and dwelt. That word dwelt also means tabernacled. He pitched his tent here with us. And that word has very strong connections to the word in the Old Testament known as Shekinah. The Shekinah glory, which was glory associated with God's presence experienced in his tabernacle or in his temple. And so we know that John has in mind when he speaks of glory, God's presence experienced. But he also has God's reflection seen. God's reflection seen. And we don't have to necessarily be clunky and only think of visual sight, physical sight, but also spiritual sight. God's reflection. God the Father and his reflection seen. He emphasized that we have seen him that we have beheld his glory. He also means God's uniqueness. His uniqueness, and specifically the uniqueness of who he is and the nature of who he is. In other words, we know God's glory when we perceive who he is in his uniqueness and understand him in a way that we prior did not. In fact, he refers to the glory that we've seen, that we beheld as one of the only Son from the Father. To this point, he's been talking about God in a generic sense and the Word. But now, he familiarizes it and calls the Father and the Son. The uniqueness, the nature and understanding the nature of the Father and the Son, and we can even say the Holy Spirit, 
who he is. He is the Father's one and only. In fact, if we go to the other gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the word that's most closely, closely associated with John's conception of one, of one and only is the word beloved. In fact, most scholars of the scriptures understand that you can see those two ideas, although they seem to say something or emphasize something different, mean the same thing. The one and only the beloved. And so God's uniqueness and nature understood and perceived is God's glory on display. How he is Father, Son, and Spirit beloved amongst themselves. This is God's glory. By the way, this is almost Almost a point-by-point reflection of what Moses' expectations were when he asked to see God's glory in Exodus 33. I mentioned that last week that we would probably be addressing Genesis, or Exodus 33. And so I just want to reread it for you in case you don't know that passage or you've forgotten that passage. In verse 18, Moses says, please show me your glory. It's a bold ask by Moses. And the father said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for if a man shall see me, he will not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by, nearby where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Clearly, by the way, God answers Moses and his request to see his glory. He is expecting to experience God's presence in a significant way. He is expecting to see his face in a significant way. He is expected to not only know his presence and experience, to see his face and its beauty and holiness, but also to know his nature, to perceive and understand his nature or his name, as the Lord calls it in this passage. So that's how John refers to the word glory and how he understands the word glory. It's the experience of his presence. It's the seeing, it's the seeing of his face, of his, of his person. It's also understanding or perceiving his nature, his name. And so the second question, in what ways does Jesus embody grace and truth as John describes it? Well, first, we have to say that in the incarnation itself, the fact that he is, he is dwelt with us, he is tabernacled with us, that he has made glory accessible, understandable, seeable, the very incarnation is Jesus actually embodying God's glory in a way that it had never been embodied before? 
In fact, this is a part of the emphasis of John's gospel account. If you go to Matthew, Mark, or Luke, you, you go and you see the greatest view of God's glory is almost always going to be pictured as the transfiguration. And that's where a few of the disciples got to see Jesus and got to see Jesus in all of his splendor. Well, the disciples that saw that, they wanted to pitch tents, tabernacles. They understood that God's glory was presence, present, and the best thing for them to be was to be in a tabernacle, which is what they associated God's glory with. Perhaps to capture the moment, perhaps even to capture God. But John, and John's always been different, but John describes his entire incarnation, his entire Life lived in the flesh as him tabernacling. In other words, there's no doubt that what happened at the transfiguration was a special visual and experience of God's glory, but he doesn't want us to lose sight of the very earthly or earthy view of God's glory coming to visit in such an accessible and understandable way in the person of Jesus. Having said that, I want to address at least three ways that Jesus tabernacled up with us, thus bringing the glory of God to earth in a way that would be both accessible and understandable to those who put their faith in him. And I'm going to describe it in three words, and then I'll explain those three words. Winsomeness, Witness and work. Winsomeness, witness, and work. These are ways in which in the incarnation, in his time in the flesh, he embodied God's glory for us in an understandable and accessible way. First, in his divine winsomeness towards humanity in the gospel, he didn't have to serve us in the way he did, but yet he washed his disciples' feet. We fast forward to chapter 17, verses 1 and 4, and then we see clearly that an aspect of what he had just done in serving his disciples was meant to glorify. He was on display showing God's glory in that act of service that act of winsomeness towards humanity. And so his divine winsomeness was meant to give us a picture of God's heart, but also in his witness, specifically his witness to the renewal possible in the gospel for us. You see, Jesus along the way performed many signs in John makes much of these signs. Cana being the first where he made water into wine at a, at a wedding. And then possibly the most impressive of the signs being the raising of Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. In these signs, he's showing us something. 
He's witnessing to something for us. He's providing a witness to the potential, the possibility of the renewal of all things that is to be had in the gospel. Where water can be wine, and not just any wine, but the best wine. Where death isn't the end. Where one who has been put in the grave can be resurrected. Lazarus is clearly a picture of the renewal of all things that will happen ultimately and finally at the resurrection. And so he brings God's glory to earth, makes it earthy, makes it accessible, understandable in his winsomeness, showing us the heart of God, in his witness to the possibility, the potential, the renewal of all things in the gospel, and finally in his redemptive work. What we call his work. It's his redemptive work in the gospel. The sacrifice. The power on display in the resurrection. See, he was perfectly obedient to God. In fact, John emphasizes later in the text that God's glory is shown in his perfect obedience in his going to the cross, in the work he came to perform, what we refer to as the work which comprises the gospel and its message of his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. It's interesting that, yes, even his death is referred to as a thing that will be a display of God's glory. A display it would, would be actually for most people anti-glory in the gospel is a display of God's glory. So Jesus, without question, embodied God's glory come to earth. Finally, in what ways is Jesus as the embodiment of God's glory a light for us as we celebrate Advent this season? Well, first of all, and I, and I hope I'm not being too flippant by this, but hopefully this is just really basic, in his presence with us. Matthew 28, he tells us he will always be with us. We know in other scriptures that means by way of of the mediating presence of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is a light for us in that he is present with us. As we gather, even apart from one another, on this Christmas Eve, he is present with us where each of us are. And we also know that when we gather in person to proclaim his name, to take the sacraments and to, and to give and to sing, and to worship at his presence for some reason is even more powerful. But his presence is always with us in the Holy Spirit. And in his coming, it was the beginning of the triggering of events that would lead to his light remaining with us for all a time for those who have faith in him. Secondly, he illumines all things. 
Again, this is actually an act and work of the Holy Spirit, a part of the task that the Holy Spirit was given, not only to mediate the presence of Jesus, but also to illuminate truth to us, to his people. When God's glory shone in the temple, it said in the Old Testament, it lit everything up. In other words, it showed what was most real and true. All the ornaments and aspects of the temple complex were meant to speak to a spiritual truth and reality that we sometimes forget. And his glory would only shine on those truths and those realities. Similarly, when we see and experience God most clearly, when we are walking in the Spirit and his light is shining for us, light is shining ahead of us, we see and experience our lives as they are most truly and clearly. And we know that this glory doesn't end here, but there's a shining yet to come at this second advent. That Revelation 21, 23 tells us that Jesus so embodies the glory of the Lord that his glory will provide light to the whole complex of worship that is the new heavens and the new earth. There's no need for sun or moon, it says. But his glory is enough. It illumines it all. It will finally, it will finally show all that is true, all that is real in a way that even with the help of the Holy Spirit, we might not have the privilege to see in this life. Finally, Jesus is the, as the embodiment of God's glory is a light for us in that, in that we experience the light he gives us and the Holy Spirit in a completely new way because of his coming in glory. You see, prior to Christ's coming, the best we pick, we've got as far as a picture is Moses, either coming down from the mountain or coming out of the tabernacle and his, light, and his face shines because of his time with the Lord. But that, that shine was only on the outside and it faded. In 2 Corinthians 3, 18 and, and further on. In fact, that whole chapter of, of, of chapter 3 in 2 Corinthians and then finally in, in chapter 5, verse 21, we are told there is a better light than the light that Moses received and that it is the light that has been brought to us by the glory that has come in the Son of God in the flesh. And that that glory works in a completely different way. First of all, it doesn't fade. And secondly, because it's emanated from the Holy Spirit that inhabits a person who has taken the gospel by faith, it shines from the inside out. From our hearts outward. And so instead of a light that fades from the outside in the gospel we have been given, the capacity to be lights from the inside out 
as the Holy Spirit of God burns bright in us. So friends, as we begin to conclude our service, as we begin to conclude our celebration of Advent 2020, if you've gathered a candle or two for your family, as an act of of faith, symbolic faith, now's your time to take that candle and light it. Knowing that the light of Christ that comes from his glory in his incarnation has been passed down to us by way of his Holy Spirit that lives in us. And that light does not fade. And so we light a candle knowing where it comes from, this light, knowing it does not fade and that it can go and shine and burn brightly and the gospel can be taken to others. Let us be lights for light has come.